Pastor Ed Taylor on how to reach our generation with the gospel. I don't think I need to convince you that we're in dark days and difficult times where people are calling good evil and evil good. And so the question is, how do we reach our generation with the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you this, we reach our culture the same way you reach a lost culture 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives one by one, family by family. And it comes through our lips. It comes through our lips. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Maybe as you look at this generation and the world as we know it, you're greatly discouraged. How can we reach them with the gospel? Well, we're about to find out on Abounding Grace, and you may be pleasantly surprised to discover the way we do it hasn't changed. Pastor Ed Taylor will open 2 Timothy 3 and Acts 17 and share five things that will help us reach this generation with the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and Acts chapter 17. We'll start in 2 Timothy 3 and we're going to land in Acts chapter 17 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Reaching Our Generation with the Gospel. Reaching Our Generation with the Gospel. This is our third study in the series, Future Past, or the series that we've called, Loving the Past but Living the Future as God is desiring us to enter into a fresh new year, building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and being appreciative of all that God has done for us and through us in our church family. But we're moving forward as we've learned. We're pressing on this one thing I do. And that one thing is the main thing. And the main thing is worshiping Jesus and following him wholeheartedly. Now, a few years ago, a ministry known as Evangelism Explosion did a survey of the American church. They did a survey of congregations in the United States, and they came back with some startling statistics. One of the statistics they shared was this. They said that 95%, listen, 95% of those that were surveyed in the American church never led another person to faith in Jesus Christ. 95%. I began to think about that in the life of our own church family. If that statistic is true, if it's true, just in our church, that literally means that thousands upon thousands of people that call Calvary Church their home have never shared the gospel and led someone else to faith in Jesus Christ. That means that if we segregated the room just today into groups of 100 people, and we said, okay, if you've ever led someone to Jesus Christ, stand still, and the rest of you walk away, that means in groups of 100, 95 people would walk away. And you know, that's not the heart of God. 
for 95% of the church not to be sharing the gospel in and through their lives. Think of that number in the broader scope of the larger church. That believers simply are not telling others about the love of Jesus Christ. It, It shouldn't be. As James would say, it ought not to be. Clearly, church, Jesus has given us our marching orders to go into all the world and share the gospel with every living creature, to make disciples. But unfortunately, not many are doing that. And yet, in our own church, the vision of our church is reduced down to one word, isn't it? Evangelism, with a responsibility to win, disciple, and send. I mean, that's the very core and heartbeat of our church, that we're saved to share. And yet, so many aren't doing it. Recently, I saw a statement on a wall in a church. It was actually in a picture where two pastors were there, and behind the pastors on the wall that they were standing in front of was a phrase that struck me. I've adopted it into my own life and been meditating upon it, and I have adopted it through the leadership of our church. And here's the statement, and I quote, we will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. I thought that was a powerful statement. That we will do anything short of sin. We won't compromise. We won't sin. We won't water down the gospel. We will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. And to that statement I say, yes. Yes, we will. That's God's mandate upon our lives. To extend the gospel to those around us. The gospel. It's the good news from God. But what is the gospel? And that's a good question to ask. Let me summarize it for you in a short paragraph. Here's the gospel. All of mankind is separated from God by sin. No matter what we do or how good we are, we will never meet God's holy and righteous standards. But God loved us so much that 2,000 years ago, he came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross in our place and rose again from the dead. And if we will turn away from our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. However, if a person rejects Jesus Christ, then they will face a certain judgment eternally separated from God. That's it. That's the gospel. That your sins can be forgiven. It's powerful. It's so powerful that it caused Paul the Apostle, when he's writing to the church in Rome, to declare for all to hear, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus would put it this way, if you believe in the Son, you will be saved, and the Son, S-O-N, speaking of himself, and if you don't believe, you will be damned. The gospel is simple and powerful, and it doesn't take much effort to recognize that we live in desperate times, difficult times, I ask you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3 because in 2 Timothy 3, we have Paul once again inspired by God to write to a young man by the name of Timothy. And he's helping this young man lead a church and oversee people's souls and help them grow. And more importantly, to reach a city with the gospel, to see a city impacted, the city of Ephesus, to see it impacted by the powerful message of the gospel. And so what does he say in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1? He tells Timothy, and he tells us today, Know this, 
that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, I find it interesting, don't you, that here in the beginning stages of the first century, the last days are mentioned. Because the last days is a phrase that refers to the imminent, ex, that, that imminent desire in the hearts of people for the return of Jesus Christ. Every generation of believers from the very first generation lived with a deep expectancy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And that the last days are not just ahead of us or even the days in which we live. The last days, that really started when Jesus ascended into heaven. That he would have us to live expectantly for him. And so this is something that we're to look at. And no doubt, the days in which we live are the last days. We are closer to the coming of Jesus Christ than ever before. Because this is one of the things that people tend to make fun of when it comes to the coming of the Lord, that the belief that we have that Jesus Christ will return. Because you'll have people say, well, you know, that's something that my grandmother would say, something that my great-grandmother would say. Even my mom used to talk about Jesus is coming again. And here I am 50 years later and Jesus hasn't come. Well, let me give you a couple things to consider. First of all, if you chose to live your life with the expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ, you did not waste your life. It was a good thing you chose to live in such a way where you lived a holy and righteous life expecting the return of Jesus. It wasn't wasted. Let me give you a second thought. Let's say that you've been waiting for Jesus Christ's soon return for 50 years. Well, let me tell you something. It is closer now. You are 50 years closer to the coming of the Lord than you were when you first started. And you live in such a way where you know he's returning, the last days. So how does he describe the last days? Notice verse 2. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Then he gets down to to describing two men by name. He says in verse 8. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses... This is a true story he's pulling from the Old Testament. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. I mean, never have we ever seen, never at any time in history have we seen this, these characteristics so common in our culture. Now, I want you to be careful Because since you live in the culture of the United States, you may limit this list just to the culture in which you live. But this is not merely a United States of America issue. This is a world issue. If you travel anywhere in the world, the human heart is dark everywhere. These issues come up all over. The depravity of man, the difficulties that people face, the the issues of, I mean, just the first one. The lovers of themselves. 
You may not use that phrase today, but I'll tell you how you describe lovers of themselves. Narcissism. Has there ever been a time in all of history where narcissism is at the highest level that it's ever been? I mean, social media has assured this and fed it, and it continues on. Where the most important people in culture are celebrities, that everybody's following and listening and buying what the celebrities are saying and presenting. I read recently that one celebrity was paid $250,000 for just one Instagram post. All she needed to do was post one Instagram picture and she was paid $250,000 for that. Can I just say something's wrong with a culture when things like that take place? It's so wrong. And yet, it's our generation. So the generation that Timothy was in, he had problems. The generation that we are in, we have problems. Our generation, in many ways, is no different than past generations. People are people. However, our generation is very different in so many ways. Our generation today is more fractured from each other than ever before. I mean, the things that they promised us that would bring us together have actually separated us. And we are in that social media generation. This is the generation, if the Lord doesn't return, that the scientists will be doing studies on this generation, and then they'll be sharing, pastors in the future perhaps will be sharing statistics of just how jacked up we are because of those phones. How it literally changed the way we think. It literally changed the way we act. It literally changed the way we interact. I mean, if you think about it, using the language of the day, the, the reality of social media has created new categories of people and friendships that never existed before. Friendships used to exist eye to eye. You used to be able to see and experience, and now there are these cyber friendships, and the, there are things, and you know, those of us that might be a little older, we go, yeah, look at this generation. It wasn't like that when we were growing up. It wasn't like, I can't believe this generation. Hold on there, hold on. Because let me tell you something. If the generation in which you grew up had the same things we have today, no doubt they would affect you. You'd be into them. You're not into them now, perhaps, not as much as others, because you didn't grow up with them. But the reality of our generation, we, we have this sense of, well, you could say our generation is the us generation, or more appropriately, you could say that we are the I generation. And not just internet generation, as that I might represent, but rather the I, me, myself, and I generation. We live in a very difficult time where even among the church family, pastors are challenged. We're challenged to teach the word of God to people that don't want the word of God, that seem to not have any time for God's word. Worse than that, not only are we crunched for time, but many people in churches today have no desire for the word of God. You have no desire to hear what God has to say. Your desires are focused elsewhere. And we've forgotten the main thing is the main thing and gotten caught up with the cares and concerns of life just like Jesus told us not to and he warned us. The very technology that was designed and supposed to give us more free time has only demanded our time and kept us tethered to it like a leash or like a ball and chain. And then there's our kids and our grandkids. Our poor kids and grandkids are in the battle of their lives. They are in the battle for their very souls but don't recognize it. 
And God has ordained in his word that parents help kids grow up in the culture in which they live. And our parents are the ones that are to stand in the gap. Yet the enemy of our souls, the devil, is very slick. And he has pulled so many parents out of the home. He has taken parents out of their lives. And parenthood has been delegated in some other place, in some other way. And our culture is paying the price for it. Our churches are paying the price. In a much greater way, we live in a fatherless generation. And I don't have the latest statistic, but taking the father out of the home has wrecked lives, has destroyed relationships. And the statistics that are in the world, as the world is marrying and divorcing, and then redefining marriage and getting into all kinds of, the statistics of the world have infiltrated the church so that the divorce rate in the church is sometimes even higher than it is proportionally in the world. And the gospel hangs in the balance. You go, how do you reach a generation like this? How is it that, that we are able to navigate into a into a culture that is anti-God or like in the book of Judges so many thousands of years ago we live in a culture where everyone is doing right what is right in their own eyes there is more stealing today there is more cheating today there is more lying today there's more drinking more drunkenness more drug use more sexual immorality among the youth within the church in the world than ever before I don't think I need to convince you that we're in dark days and difficult times where people are calling good evil and evil good. And so the question is, how do we reach our generation with the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you this, we reach our culture the same way you reach a lost culture 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives one by one, family by family. And it comes through our lips. It comes through our lips. You know, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of uh, interaction with other pastors and other churches. I have the privilege of serving and encouraging and exhorting. So I find myself around leaders a lot. And I've, I've heard this phrase that is coming into the language of pastors, which I'm very encouraged and very happy about. And the phrase is, and I was, we just had, thank you for your prayers, we just had our pastor's breakfast. It was very successful, very beneficial, very encouraging for the pastors in the morning and their wives in the evening. I was so grateful. Thank you for praying. At the table I was sitting at at the pastor's breakfast, one of the brothers there, he's replanting a Baptist church just north of us in Aurora. He was talking about that, and he said something like this, and I won't quote, but I've heard this more than once. He said, the days of just opening your doors and waiting for people to come are over. And to that I say amen. But here in our church, we have never adopted that mindset. We've never had a mindset, well, you know, if we just show up and we just open the doors and we'll just sit around and wait for people to come. No, no. Those days, if they've ever existed in any church anywhere, I declare them they are over and they never should have started to begin with. The mandate of Jesus Christ is for us to go. It's for us to, the, the, the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ is one of infiltration. It's not of isolation. That the vision of our church is what? When disciple and stay. No, no, it's not. It's when disciple and send. And there's, that send is applied in a variety of different ways. Some of you are future world missionaries, and we'll have the privilege of praying for you and sending you off. Some of you are going to be church planters, and we'll pray for you and send you off. But all of us are sent into the culture in which we're in. 
and you're gonna be sent off in just a few minutes. If you stick around for the huddle, then you'll leave after that. But you will be sent into the world where God wants you. And so today we come to Acts chapter 17 and learn five things that we can adapt into our own lives to reach this culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17, Paul the apostle is in the city of Athens in Greece. It is, the, it is a very large city with a large hill in the middle known as the Areopagus. And, and so in the Areopagus is where you would build, the, where the pagans would build their largest pagan temple. And on the side of the hill is an area known as Mars Hill. And Mars Hill will be referenced here as, you come, as they come together and discuss philosophy and religious things. And they would all just come together and talk. That's where we are in Acts 17. Pick up with me in verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So if you're taking notes, five things that will help us reach our generation. Five things. Number one, we need to have a burden for the lost. We must have a burden for the lost to be personally provoked by what we see in our culture. Notice it says in verse 16 that as Paul was hanging out in Athens, his spirit was provoked. If you like to write in your Bible, circle that word provoked. It literally means exasperated, irritated, or roused to anger. And why? Because he saw the city was given over to idols. They were idol worshipers. There was no, no representation of the one true God. The gospel had not yet penetrated Athens, and Paul is upset about it. He has a burden for the lost. It moved him. And so we have to ask, our, ask the question, what do you see and what do you feel when you look out at Denver that's given to idolatry? What do you see when you see a nation that has turned their back on God? What do you see when you look globally and see some nations never turn to God to begin with? How do you feel? I'll tell you, a lot of times the passion of believers is literally stolen and ripped off by social media. Because you will see something on the news, you will feel something, you'll hear about something, and immediately your fingers go. And you say this, and you post that, and I can't believe that. And all the passion is stolen and ripped off. Instead of this provocation sending you to your knees in prayer and asking God, how do you want me to be a, a solution to the darkness of this world? How do you want me to be a solution? I mean, it's one thing to post what you feel and your opinions, but really, how is that bringing a person to Jesus Christ? How is that changing a life? You see, the culture sometimes shapes us instead of us shaping the culture. Pastor Ed Taylor encouraging us to have a burden for the lost. And you're listening to Abounding Grace and part of a series called Loving the Past, Living the Future. 
If you miss any portion, you can catch up by going to calvaryaurora.org or listen through our app. Just do a search for Calvary Aurora. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to delivering God's Word to stations like this every day, but we can't do it alone. We're very thankful for the listeners that come alongside us with financial and or prayerful support. And if you'd like to help us reach people with the love and truth of Christ, please visit calvaryaurora.org or call 877-30-GRACE. And as you give $25 or more today, we'll say thanks by sending you Married and How to Stay That Way by Steve Carr. Whether you're on the brink of divorce, not happy with the way things are going in your marriage, or looking for some tools to help take your relationship to the next level, this book is a must-read. It's written in a counseling style with practical encouragement. And there are group discussion questions at the end of each chapter, so this would work well in a small group Bible study. Call 877-30-GRACE or turn to calvaryaurora.org on the web to make a secure donation. We'll continue to learn how to reach this generation with the gospel Monday on Abounding Grace, when Pastor Ed Taylor will finish up our series, Loving the Past, Living the Future. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado. 